everyone. How, how do you follow up such wonderful singing? I, I almost feel like we should just uh, close in prayer. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, No, uh, hopefully I'm out of the way for this, and uh, the Word of God will all speak to us. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Uh, and we're going to be uh, delving, uh, continuing on in this chapter, following the Apostle Paul in his ministry as he uh, now has arrived in Jerusalem. We know that the Apostle had been anticipating this. It seems as if uh, the, the past several uh, chapters have been looking ahead to Jerusalem, the things that are going to take place there. And Paul is anticipating uh, all kinds of suffering as a result. And yet, as we saw, he's willing to steadfastly continue on uh, despite what may face him. Uh, stating, uh, as we see in verse 14, saying that the will of the Lord be, will, uh, the will of the Lord be done. So uh, the passage we're going to look at today, it's uh, kind of an interesting passage. The, the first time, maybe the first couple times you read it, you wonder, what, what do I make of this? Because it has to do with the law, the law of God, specifically the, uh, the ceremonial laws, we might call it, those laws that pertain to the people of Israel and set the people of Israel apart. And uh, we might ask the question, how do, how do we as Christians uh, understand our, uh, how we're to interact with this law? What is it uh, that is going on here? Is what we find here with the Apostle Paul in contradiction to other places uh, and other things that the Apostle Paul taught? Uh, well, we'll just have to see. So, uh, I look forward to uh, delving into this with you. So Acts chapter 21, and we'll be reading verses 15 through 26. Now after these days, we got ready and started our way up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And after we had arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God did among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Then all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should keep from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we have uh, to continue reading your word, to continue following along the Apostle Paul, looking at uh, what you have led him through and the things that we can learn from it even in our day. I pray that you would be with us, that you would speak to us through your word, that anything spoken in error would be quickly forgotten and that we would be able to take the principles that are, ha- that are to be found in this word and apply them to our own lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as you might have gathered from reading this, it's not necessarily the easiest passage uh, to figure out what in the world is going on here is what the Apostle Paul did appropriate. Uh, What do we make of these things? So I thought it'd be uh, good to have a discussion uh, regarding not only the law and how we are to interact with the law, different elements of the law, but also uh, I think this also speaks on uh, areas of conscience where there is freedom of conscience to uh, do what your con- what the Lord has laid on your conscience to do. But we get into our passage, verse 15. Uh, after these days, we, we remember the Apostle Paul was in Caesarea. That's the last place we found him. It's while, uh, up, up to this time, Paul had been receiving warnings uh, from city to city that when he reached Jerusalem, that bonds and afflictions would await him. And it's in Caesarea where he receives one final warning from Agabus. We remember Agabus, the prophet, who took off the belt of Paul and and bound him and stated that uh, in the same way, the owner of the belt will be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. So uh, one last warning before he departs uh, on his way to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasin of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with who we were to lodge. So Caesarea was about 60 miles away from Jerusalem. Perhaps this was a halfway point. They get to this house of Manasin, who's called a disciple of long standing, or uh, as my translation puts it, an early disciple. And the word used to describe him is uh, archaos, right? right? You ever heard the word archaic? Right, So this guy was an, an archaic disciple, and maybe some of you are in here are saying, oh yeah, I know what that means. Um, but uh, no, Manasin was a disciple very early on, perhaps from the beginning, perhaps even a disciple during the time of Jesus. And uh, it's interesting that Luke notes uh, this man, and, and some even suggest that this individual, Manasin, served as one of Luke's sources for writing not only the gospel, but the book of Acts. We remember Luke, uh, as he is writing these things, he is collecting them from various sources, interviews, other writings. This is what he says to Theophilus, insomuch as it has been undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished by us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses. And this man perhaps may have been one of those individuals. And Luke said, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth of the things that you have been taught. So he lodges in this house of Manasin of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing, and then finally they arrive in Jerusalem, and the brethren received us gladly. So uh, imagine what the Apostle Paul is anticipating when he gets to Jerusalem. Well, he doesn't know 
uh, exactly what is going to happen other than afflictions and bondage awaits him. Uh, so what a pleasant thing it would be that the first thing they, he encounters when they arrive are uh, fellow Christians, Jewish Christians who gladly and warmly receive not only Paul, but also his traveling companions. Because remember, Paul is not alone on this. Uh, Luke is likewise with him. Also, there are representatives from the various churches of Asia and uh, the various places that Paul went to. So he's got a, quite, a, quite a group of men with him, many of them Gentiles. And yet, uh, even these Gentiles are warmly welcomed by the church in Jerusalem. They demonstrate a solidarity that they have with the Apostle Paul and also with his traveling companions. And it's important to note this in light of what is to come because not everyone had such warm feelings towards the Apostle Paul as we will discover. Verse 18, in the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul then meets with the leadership in the Jerusalem church, and one of those leaders in the Jerusalem church was James, James the brother of the Lord Jesus, has a, had a very prominent role earlier on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. If you remember, it was at Acts chapter 15 that the issue of whether or not Gentiles had to be circumcised came up. And James was the one who referred to the scriptures saying that we need not trouble the Gentiles with these things. Uh, so James, very prominent role, and uh, tradition tells us that James would even eventually die in Jerusalem. Uh, he was, tradition tells us that he was martyred, he was uh, thrown off the roof of the temple, and then killed with a club. Uh, that, so James, uh, present in Jerusalem, he's one of the prominent figures there. But it's not only James who's present, but James and all the elders in Jerusalem as well. The elders are likewise present. And it's interesting that the other apostles aren't mentioned. We know that at least earlier on, James wasn't the only apostle in Jerusalem, but Peter was also there as well as John. In Galatians, the apostle Paul tells us that early on when he went to Jerusalem, he met with Peter and uh, James, uh, not the brother of John James, but this James, and John. So Peter and John at one point were in Jerusalem, but it seems that at this point they have departed and are undergoing their own missionary endeavors. And we see that there are elders present. So earlier on when the church was ruled by the apostles uh, before this leadership structure, but now things seem to be solidifying. They're uh, falling into the practice of appointing elders. And this is the practice that the apostle Paul also uh, partook in uh, when he went on his missionary journeys. And this is what he also instructed those who came after him to do. In his letter to Titus, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So we see that elder rule is the norm in the New Testament church. And it's even the norm at this point in time. So James meets, or, uh, uh, Paul meets with James and the elders of the church, and they greet him, and he begins to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. 
So Paul begins to tell his story, what God had done to him, gone, done through him among the Gentiles. One of the early difficulties of the Christian church was the incorporation of the Gentiles into the body of Christ along with the Jews. And we've talked about this before, but it's kind of hard for us to get into that mindset, right? The Jewish mindset is we are the people of God. We are set apart by God. These are the things that we are. These are the things that we do. And everyone outside of us, uh, by virtue of the fact that they are not Jews, are not the people of God. That's kind of the Jewish mindset. Uh, So it was a difficult thing uh, to some when Gentiles began to be welcomed into the church. Uh, It it wasn't a given in the mind of the Jews that Gentiles were to be welcomed in the way that they were. And we even see this after the persecution against the Christian church rose up. Uh, In Acts chapter 11, it tells us that when the persecution associated with Saul and Stephen arose, many of the brethren made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, but they spoke the word to no one except Jews. And it can be easy for us with 2020 hindsight to look back and say, oh, that was wrong. But to them, that's just how it was. Uh, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Therefore, we go and tell the Jews. But we also see that uh, at this point in time, the church had welcomed the Jews. We know that uh, Peter, he had a ministry among the Gentiles. We uh, remember uh, Cornelius, where he went to him, and the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles in the same way that he fell upon the Jewish people. And we also know at this point in time, the church was welcoming Gentiles uh, without them first becoming Jews. And this is what Acts chapter 15 was all about, where uh, uh, it was uh, even James who says these words, that uh, he quotes Amos saying, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. And he judges that they not trouble the Gentiles who are turning to God by forcing them to become Jews. So Paul comes and he relates the message, he relates what God is doing among the Gentiles, and they are glorifying God for it. And that's another important thing to point out related to the character of the Apostle Paul. They're glorifying God for the work that is done. Now, uh, it could be very easy to imagine why Uh, Paul might be very excited about the work that God was doing, but it's also easy to understand why Paul might, uh, it'd be easy for me, we'll say, if I had a very successful missionary journey to come back and talk about all the things that I had done, right? Uh, Talk about how God had uh, done all, talk about how, oh, I've done this, I preached you know, I taught in the school of Tyrannus for three years, every single day. I preached before kings and rulers. I was uh, persecuted by the Jews for this. It'd be very easy for Paul to turn this into an occasion for boasting about his success in the mission field. Uh, there are several churches that were founded by the Apostle Paul. and In fact, the world had been reached as a result of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And yet, Paul recognizes, along with the Christians in the Jerusalem church, that the glory belongs to God. And that's, we're just reminded that as we're reading this, this is 
yes, the book of Acts, many people call it the Acts of the Apostles, but I think a more accurate way to describe it is the Acts of Jesus working through the Holy Spirit uh, uh, and those whom he has sent. So uh, we're reminded once again that Christ is the one who is ultimately building his church. So they're glorifying God for what they're doing through the Gentiles. And we also see that there's a tremendous amount of success in the Jewish mission field as well. Uh, We continue reading. They're glorifying God and they say to him in verse 20, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So just as there are thousands of Gentiles who are coming to the faith, there are thousands of Jewish people who are coming to the faith. And he also notes that these are Jews who are zealous for the law. And this is where they begin to run into uh, some issues related to the Apostle Paul. In verse 21, it says this, They have been told about you, that you were teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake the law of Moses telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to their customs. So Paul is charged here with commanding Jews to forsake the law. So uh, the Jerusalem church warmly welcomes Paul, but they say, you know, there's a problem because many of the brethren who are zealous for the law, they're a little bit nervous about you, Paul, And they're nervous about you because they're saying that you're running around and telling our brethren that they no longer are to observe the law of Moses. They no longer are to observe the customs such as circumcision and uh, washings and various things that go along with that. These things that set the Jewish people apart as the Jewish people, right? Uh, And it's easy to understand why people might have been able to twist Paul's words to Uh, mean this. And something else that's important to realize is that the Apostle Paul, though he was an apostle, though we can look back at him and take his word as the word of God, he was not as universally accepted in his day as he is in our day, right? Once again, we have the, the perfect vision of hindsight. We can look back and see that Paul was an apostle, that he spoke for God, But at that point in time, there are many who weren't so sure about the Apostle Paul. And we even remember very early on after Paul was converted, when he arrived in Jerusalem, people were very nervous about him because they knew him as Saul, the persecutor of Christians, the one who stood by at the death of Stephen. And similarly, there are churches that Paul founded who very shortly after he founded the churches seemingly began to abandon his teachings. Think of the church of Galatia, for example, where Paul, he goes, he proclaims the gospel among them, but then once Paul is gone, they begin to reject his message and turn to a false gospel. It's the same with the church in Corinth, where many are being led astray. They're being taught that, oh, that apostle Paul, he's not what he's all chalked up to be. Uh, You should follow us instead. Uh, so it's very uh, so it's important to realize that Paul wasn't universally accepted everywhere he went in his day, and part of this was due to various rumors, lies, and distortions of his teaching that led many to dis- to just completely outright dismiss the Apostle Paul and his ministry. One place where we can even see this is in Romans chapter 3, verse 8. You don't have to turn there, I'll I'll read it. 
Uh, but Paul even notes how people slanderously twisted his words to make him say something that he wasn't saying. In Romans chapter 3, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says this, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So what's Paul saying? Uh, people take my words, they twist them around, and then they come back and say, oh, the Apostle Paul is teaching people to do evil so that God can bring good about from it, right? And that's not what he was teaching. It was obviously slanderous, but it didn't stop that teaching from going forth. You ever hear the saying that uh, a lie makes it around the world before the truth has time to put on its shoes, right? And that's the way it is, especially in the age of uh, social media and the internet, where uh, the truth is often outright blocked by those who are pr uh, uh, pushing their, their lies. But the same thing happened in those days, and the same things happened with the Apostle Paul. Uh, it'd be very easy to take the teaching of the Apostle Paul regarding Christ's fulfilling the law and give the impression that the Apostle Paul was basically saying we need to get rid of that Old Testament or we need to get rid of that law of Moses. Uh, so we can see why many of these Jewish people would hear certain words or phrases of Paul, especially if they've been, if they've been passed around. And then if someone doesn't like the Apostle Paul, they can come and take that teaching, twist it to make it sound even worse than it actually is, and then give everyone the impression that this Apostle Paul is not someone we should be trifling with. And the same thing happens in our day, too. There are all kinds of various uh, teachers and preachers and uh, whoever else that are out there that many of us uh, would want nothing to do with. And it's not because we have sat down and listened to them and carefully judged what they have to say, but it's because we have heard someone else say something about them. We've believed that, and then now I just look at them through that lens, whether it's right or wrong. Right? So we can do that in our day, too. Uh, so that's uh, something to be aware of. Um, uh, so something, there is a little bit of truth to what is said here, right? Like I said, what do they do? They take the truth and they twist it into a lie. We know that the Apostle Paul consistently taught that we are not saved by obedience to the law, but rather we are saved through faith in Christ. So Paul taught that it wasn't the law that saves you. It's not obedience to the law that saves you. It's faith in Christ that saves you. In Romans chapter 3, verses uh, 28 through 31, he says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the judge of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. We do, uh, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. But you can see how it would be very easy to take that and twist it around and say, therefore, get rid of the law. We're not justified by the law, therefore get rid of it. Right? That's not what he's saying, but it could be very easy to see how that could be twisted. Uh, similarly, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whom I, whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out about you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? So how is it that you receive the Holy Spirit? Through hearing with faith, not through works of the law. He goes on, 
Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So once again, he's saying, justification is by faith alone, always has been by faith alone, always will be by faith alone. There's nothing we can do to add for it through works of the law. And if we're trusting in the works of the law, then we have completely lost the gospel message. So Paul is consistent on that teaching, right? Uh, However, once again, like I said, it doesn't follow then that this law somehow needs to be completely abandoned or thrown out or counted as worthless. And this brings us to uh, an important discussion I want to have and a question I want to ask, and it's something that we all need to work through on our own. But the question is this, how do we as Christians relate to the law of God today? How do we as Christians relate to the law of God today, right? Uh, You know, something that's important to understand about the law of God is that the law in its entirety is a reflection of God's moral character. And in no way is any jot or tittle of the law irrelevant for us, right? We might think of the law as, well, there's some parts of the law that Uh, yeah, those are good, those are important, but there are other parts of the law, those don't really matter. Uh, Those can just go away. But that's not the truth that the scriptures teach. The Lord Jesus states, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we need to have this understanding. The law doesn't just disappear. The law doesn't go away. The law is a perfect reflection of the character of God. However, how that law is applied to us is not going to be the same in every age among every people group, right? Uh, for, and uh, again, there are different laws for different circumstances. And we can sometimes divide the law up into three categories, right? Three, three categories of law. Ceremonial, uh, there's ceremonial law, there's uh, civil law, and there's moral law. That's often how we've categorized them. And they're not perfect categorizations. They often overlap one another. But when we look at a law in the Old Testament in particular, we can usually fit it into one of these three categories. It's either a moral law that's going to have a binding authority uh, in the exact way that it's laid out, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, There are civil laws that, uh, yeah, there's a principle behind the law, but it might not necessarily be applied in the same way. And there are ceremonial laws, and these would be laws that are to set the Jewish people apart. Things like circumcision, things like the sacrificial system, things that we no longer observe in the same way today. So uh, that's often how people have divided it up. Um, So there are parts of the law, as I said, They have the exact same application at every time and at every culture. For example, all people everywhere, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, are obligated to worship Yahweh, the one true God who created the heavens and the earth. 
It doesn't matter if you're here living in the United States. It doesn't matter if you're living on an island that has never been reached. All people everywhere are obligated to worship the one true God. There are also laws in which uh, we are to relate with one another that are likewise universal. You shall not murder has binding authority everywhere you go, no matter where you are, no matter who you are. Uh, It applies across the board everywhere. You shall not commit adultery. Similarly, you shall not steal. All of these. The Apostle Paul, in fact, is willing to hold the Corinthian church up uh, against these laws. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So what's he doing? He's saying, one of you has taken his father's wife, and this is wrong. And in fact, you should have known this was wrong. You should have excluded this person from fellowship. And why is that? Well, because the law says, cursed is he who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's skirt. So Paul is willing to take that and apply that to Corinthians, who are Gentiles, who are not living in the land of Israel, and he says, doesn't matter. This has universal application. There are also laws that, have, that may not have the same application today, but still carry a binding principle. For example, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. Well, how many of us uh, obey that law? We'll, we'll think, well, hold on a second, I don't even have an ox. Well, some of the farmers in here might have something close to an ox, right? But uh, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Uh, what do we find in that law? Well, they may, it may not have the same application to us today, but there is an underlying principle that is found in the law that we are held to. And this is the law that the Apostle Paul even quotes as he defends uh, uh, giving wages to those who preach the word. He says, at who, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking of these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? So what does he do? He takes this law. He says, what's the principle here? He gave that to us. And the principle there is the worker is worthy of his wages. So we can see these are civil laws. There's still an underlying authority to it, but it's not going to be applied in the same way. But the law that we're going to be, the law that's under discussion here, the kinds of laws that are under discussion here are what we might call the civil laws. These are the laws that specifically set the people of Israel apart, right? These are related to the proper worship of God, the setting apart of Israel, and these laws ultimately pointed ahead to Christ, right? These would include things like dietary laws, clothing laws, cleanliness cleanliness laws, the law of circumcision, these various things that the Jewish people practiced uh, because they were to, it was to set them apart, as God gave these laws, one refrain that he would, get, what he would often say is, you do this so that you can be holy, for I am holy, 
right? So ceremonial laws, things that we may not practice in the same way that Israel did, but there's still an underlying truth that is pointed to in these laws. The Apostle Peter says that as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts uh, which you were, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So dietary laws, God would give a dietary law. He'd say, do not eat this animal. You shall be holy for I am holy, right? This set the people of Israel apart. How did someone know who was an Israelite? Well, by the things that he ate and didn't eat, by the way that he dressed, uh, by certain things that he would wear, by certain practices he would take. That's how someone would look at an Israelite and know, okay, you are set apart. You are holy. Peter says we likewise are to be holy, but not in that same way. These things find their fulfillment ultimately in Christ. So how are we holy? We're not conformed to the former lusts, which were ours in our ignorance. We do not have partnership with darkness, right? Uh, We do not have harmony uh, between Christ and Belial, uh, between a believer and an unbeliever. We do not worship in temples of foreign gods. Therefore, you shall be holy as I am holy. Again, the same underlying principle is there. Similarly, the sacrificial system, along with the priesthood, Uh, and everything that goes along with it have their goal in ultimately pointing ahead to Christ. What does the sacrificial system teach the people of Israel? Well, it teaches them that the wages of sin is death. Something must die because of my sin. And who is the ultimate sacrifice that these sacrifices point to? They ultimately point to Christ. The author of Hebrews tells us that the law, since it only has a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. So the law is called a shadow of things to come. Uh, But he then goes on and says, By this will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. So we may not have that same priesthood, we may not have that same sacrificial system, and yet we still have a priest. Our priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. We still have a temple, the holy presence of God in heaven. We still have that mediating work of Christ. We still have that sacrifice, all of that fulfilled in Christ. So how is it that we fulfill these aspects of the law? Well, they are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So uh, just, I thought it'd be an important thing to highlight and maybe help us to understand uh, these things that are going on. But the concern here that the Apostle Paul is dealing with, to get back to the text, is that there are many Jewish brethren who are zealous for the law. And I think what uh, it's speaking of, really, is they're zealous for those customs that set them apart. He talks about uh, they're concerned that they've heard that the Apostle Paul is teaching Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, not telling them to circumcise their children, nor walk according to the customs. So that's the fear. That's the charge that's being laid against the Apostle Paul, that uh, he's running around telling Jews to abandon these aspects of the law. Now, something uh, that's important as we begin to think through this a little bit, I think something that we can assume is that the Church of Jerusalem understood that these aspects of the law are not what make them righteous before Christ. 
I think it's safe to assume that they understood the gospel and they understood that their circumcision and that their observance of the law is not what made them right before God. And I think it's safe to assume that uh, as the Apostle Paul has given these instructions, that he would not follow through with these instructions if he thought they were in any way compromising the gospel. We know that the Apostle Paul is not afraid to stand up, even to another apostle, when it came to compromising the gospel. In Galatians chapter 2, he talks about uh, the time that he had with Peter in Antioch, where he says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw himself and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So the situation is this. There's the church of Antioch. It's a mix of both Jewish and Christian, uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians, right? And it seems that in the church of Antioch, the Jewish Christians had no problem sharing table fellowship with the Gentiles who were there. Right? Peter was happy to sit down and have a ham sandwich with his Gentile brethren. However, when certain men who claimed to come from James came along, seeking to, uh, 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 seeking to what's it say, uh, coming from James, uh, spying out their freedom in Christ, what did Peter begin to do? Well, he began to say, uh-oh, I can't eat that ham sandwich anymore. Uh, I can't enjoy table fellowship with the Gentiles anymore because I don't want to be unclean or whatever the reason might be. And the Apostle Paul said, you're compromising the gospel by doing this because what are you doing? You're giving the presentation that you can only have true fellowship with Christ if you are a Jew and if you are set apart by these Jewish customs. So uh, that's the problem that was happening in Antioch. And it's safe, I think, I think, my opinion, that it's safe to assume that this is not the issue that is taking place in Jerusalem, right? Uh, Because what is Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem was, for the most part, a Jewish church. There were probably not a lot of Gentile Christians living in Jerusalem at the time. And uh, though obedience to these laws is not what saved you, and though trusting in Christ plus works uh, brought the curse of God, it does not follow that Jews who became Christians now had to abandon their Jewish heritage. Right? That's the charge, that Paul is running around telling Jews who become Christians that they can no longer be Jews. They can no longer do those things that set them apart as Jews. And we know that this isn't the case, and we know that this isn't what Paul even practiced, and we know that this isn't what the early church even practiced. In the early days of the church, the disciples of Jesus still met for worship in the temple. At the end of Luke, we read that after Jesus uh, resurrected, uh, after Jesus went up into heaven, we read that the disciples returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. Peter and John, likewise, in Acts chapter 3, went to the temple during the hour of prayer. Why? Because that's what the Jews did. 
right? They had no problem participating in these things. And the Apostle Paul, likewise, taught that Jews need not become Jews and Gentiles, or, uh, or Jews need not become Gentiles and Gentiles need not become Jews because being either one did not affect your standing before God. First Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. So what's he saying? Were you called as a Jew? Well, you're not to become not a Jew. Similarly, has anyone, uh, has anyone been called in uncircumc- uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Did you come to Christ as a Gentile? Well, then you are not to become a Jew. Stay a Gentile. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. So Paul did not tell Jews that they could no longer be Jews or anything like that. And in fact, uh, the Apostle Paul had no problem uh, living as a Jew among the Jews. As he said to the Corinthians, To the Jews I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, although not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. So what's he saying? When I was with the Jews, I lived as a Jew. When I was with those under the law, I lived as one under the law. Recognizing that it is not the law that is, uh, maintains my right standing before God or anything like that, but I did this in order that I might win Jews. And in the same way, when I was among the Gentiles, I lived as a Gentile. I had no issue with this. When he was among the Jews, he lived as the Jews. He did, not to see, he did not seek to offend or to place any needless stumbling blocks along the way that would prevent, him from lis- uh, prevent them from listening to the gospel message. And we even know that earlier on in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul took a vow right? And we don't know exactly what this vow was, but it had to do with him cutting his hair. Perhaps Paul took a Nazarite vow, the same vow that these men in the Jerusalem church likely have taken. So we see that the Apostle Paul has no problem being a Jew among the Jews. He has no problem with Jewish Christians remaining, uh, remaining as Jews. And I think what the issue here really is, is an issue related to conscience, Can a Jew continue to live as a Jew while being a Christian, so long as he recognizes that it's not his Jewishness that makes him right before God? There's nothing wrong with that. uh, Is the Jew going to do things that a Gentile might not do? Yep. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Similarly, a Gentile may do things that a Jew would be uncomfortable with. Is there anything wrong with that? No. The Apostle Paul to the Romans says, Accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? So if I'm a Jew... I become a Christian, and yet I still am holding on to these Jewish ceremonial laws, these things that I've always done. Is it wrong for me to maintain that? 
absolutely not. And I think that's what's going on here. There was a stumbling block that was being placed before these Jews that would prevent them from listening to what the Apostle Paul said because of this distorted teaching of Paul, that Paul were running around telling Jews to abandon their Jewish heritage. And this could very easily have led Jewish Christians to acting against their own consciences. Paul says, pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food, right? Uh, And then he goes on and he says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin, So I think it's for this reason that the Apostle Paul had no issue going along with these instructions that are given. Verse 23, Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Then all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should keep from meat sacrifice to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from sexual immorality. So Paul happily uh, goes along with this. Uh, He happily lives as a Jew among the Jews so as to not to cause a stumbling block. And we also see that the instructions for the Gentiles are also reiterated. Right? This isn't, uh, when we read this, we shouldn't come to the conclusion that we all need to start shaving our heads or to start participating in Jewish law or anything like that. Uh, but what we do see is the Apostle Paul uh, acting in a way so as to not cause needless stumbling. Uh, though, many Jews, uh, uh, though many Jews sought to obey the ceremonial aspects of the law, Gentiles were not to be bound by these regulations. So Paul follows through with this, participates in obedience to the law, and he purifies himself along with these whom he is with. So in conclusion, I know we're a little over time, but let's, let's close up real quick. So Paul arrives in Jerusalem, and the account here gives us a couple different lessons that we can apply uh, to our own lives. One, one lesson that we can get from this is it's easy to get a false impression of someone as a result of someone else twisting their teachings. And that's what happened with the Apostle Paul, right? The, the, story, the rumor went out that the Apostle Paul is teaching these things that would be contrary to what he has taught in other places, would be contrary to sound doctrine. And it can be very easy for us to hear certain things about someone uh, and immediately dismiss that person, right? Uh, another lesson that we can take from this is it's important for us as Christians to think through our relationship with the law of God today, right? We recognize we're not Jews. We recognize there's not a temple or anything like that, but we need to be careful to not uh, follow the spirit of the age that basically tells us we need to basically throw all that stuff out. There are many Christian teachers who are running around telling people that that Old Testament stuff does not apply to us anymore, But we know from the teaching and the ministry of the Apostle Paul that that is not so. We know that there's room for discussion in how these things are applied, uh, but we can't immediately just throw everything out. Uh, And another important thing uh, for us that we can apply in our own lives 
is sometimes we may have to set our own preferences aside and bear with the weaker brother so that we do not cause them to stumble, right? Uh, We may not have any Jewish Christians in our midst who might get offended if we ate pork in their presence, but there are all kinds of things that may cause us to stumble. There are things that may cause you to stumble that would not cause me to stumble, and vice versa. And we need to have uh, a consciousness of those different elements, uh, those different issues that, um, that the Bible addresses, these things that are not necessarily moral issues, but issues of conscience. And we, like the Apostle Paul, at points in time need to be willing to set aside our own preferences so as to not cause our brothers and sisters to stumble. So uh, let's, let's close uh, with, a word, with a word of thanks. Our Father, we are thankful for the time that we've had together, the time to consider your word, the Apostle Paul, uh, and how, how we are to interact with these, these various things, these challenges that come up in the text. Uh, I pray that we've all been blessed by this, that we would seek to apply it in our own lives, that we'd be challenged to take a deeper look into some of these things that are a little bit harder for us to wrap our minds around. But I pray that we would seek to walk in light of the truth that is revealed to us in your word, this, uh, these coming days and weeks. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.